from the WGN Skyline Studio. WGN Radio presents a conversation. I want to make one thing perfectly clear. A dialogue. What are you prepared to do? An astute debate. Everything that's in the law. And a peek behind the curtain of politics. And then what are you prepared to do? I think Chicago is not only the center of the country, I think it's the center of the world. Don't tread on them. Where did this statement come from? This is the Sunday Spin. Your host is the Chicago Tribune's Rick Pearson. Good Sunday morning, everyone. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome to this edition of the Sunday Spin for December the 1st, 2019. Yes, December is here. Well, welcome to our look at the world of politics and policy as we take you from City Hall to the State House and all the way on to the White House. So, time to grab that Sunday paper, get that hot cup of coffee, and we'll do our best to get your week off to a great start. Well, I hope you all had a uh, great Thanksgiving as we close out Thanksgiving weekend. For the first time, I had a deep-fried turkey. Oh, really? And it was very good. You never had that before? No, I hadn't. And uh, they were offering it uh, where uh, we had our Thanksgiving dinner, and it was uh, it was quite good. I, I enjoyed it. it. You know, you might think it would be rather unhealthy being a deep-fried and all of that, but once you get the skin away, that, that meat was tender and well-cooked. And moist. Uh, yes, and yes. That's right. That's right. Yep. I thought of you, though, Rick, because um, of the the stuffing that they were serving. It was a sausage and sage stuffing. Excellent. And it was excellent. Yeah. I I, I was enjoying that in my second, maybe third helping. And and I thought, boy, you know, if Rick were here, he would would be really enjoying this, too. So we had a a great dinner across the board and a really nice afternoon. And your dad doing well? Yes. Which is great. Yep. He enjoyed, uh, well, of course, uh, no matter how much uh, Thanksgiving food there is, there's always time for dessert. So, (laughs) and they were serving up a good pumpkin pie for it. Excellent. Excellent. How about you, Andy? Yeah, I was in in Denver. uh, Lucky to get there because of the (laughs) lovely snowstorm they had out there. Uh, my brother actually uh, smoked the turkey this year. Excellent. So it was very, very good. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of tender uh, meat to, to eat there. And uh, my mom uh, was there as well, made some stuffing for us, which she always does every uh, Thanksgiving, which is delicious. And uh, then for a dessert, we had a, we had a choice. Uh, there was a pumpkin pie, and there was also this warm apple crumble, Ooh. which was, I have to admit, I was looking more forward to that than the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> But both were very that good. That does sound good. And yeah, both were very crumbled. good. Well, hmm. how, how long did it take him to smoke the turkey? You know, it took him, let's see, he said he put it out there at about, uh, eh, I think he said 7.30 his, uh, in the morning, and we ate at about 4.30, 4.45. Okay. So All it wasn't right. too bad, but, no. uh, and, and, you know, we just had to dodge the uh, the snow piles that were out there by the, by the smoker that was outside. Yeah, that's half the fun. Yeah, that's he was, he was doing a good job. I was watching him and cheering him on. Oh. <laughs> How about yourself? Uh, went to, went out with friends and uh, just uh, made my uh, uh, jazzed up green bean casserole, which turned out excellent. And uh, I'll, I'll just more food than you can imagine. I mean, really, really. But I, I kind of did something different last Sunday though. After the show, 
I, I decided for cultural purposes, because, you know, when you think of me, it's all about the culture, right? <laughs> High culture. Yeah. That's why you were dressed up. We had to call him Mr. Pearson <laughs> when he was in the uh, newsroom. So I went to see uh, I Am Not a Comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce at the Royal George. Oh, yeah. How yeah. was that? Did you like it? Oh, my gosh. I will tell you. What, what a show. Now, it, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's about Lenny Bruce. <laughs> That's so, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, <laughs> it was in the cabaret theater at the Royal George, and there are portions of the show. Ronnie Marmo stars as Larry Bruce. He he, he wrote the show. Uh, uh, Joe Mantegna is the director of this show, by the way, and it's extended till January fifth. Um, but it, it there are segments of it where he's doing you know the one of Lenny Bruce's acts, and that cabaret setting is just perfect for that. An, an intimate up close uh uh experience yeah for the audience. and even even some audience interaction too as well and uh i just can't uh, but it's a roller coaster i mean it's just you know it's a, there's the, the the jokes that he tells there's the sad parts of his life uh and uh but it's 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 kind of about the importance of words and truth and hypocrisy you it's know. really what Lenny Bruce uh, was was all about. Yeah, and and but I think all of that's more relevant now than ever. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a fascinating, fascinating uh, excursion back. Uh, and I, it's well worth it. I, I I'd encourage anybody to go. I, I, I really would. I think Bruce is. He's been gone well over fifty years now, hasn't he? Sixty six, nineteen sixty six. Okay, I yeah, fifty three, um, fifty three years. Yeah. And uh, but uh, I will tell you, it's it, the the words are as timely as ever. Uh, but uh, yeah, it make and it makes you think, and that's mm -hmm. that's what you know. That's what a, a good a good show make you do. This runs into January now. Yes, it's been extended to uh, January fifth at the Royal George Theater. Since we're talking dates, I I think it, it would be worth mentioning. We now have twenty four shopping days left. <laughs> until christmas <laughs> you really had to go there didn't you well you know we were talking dates and holidays and uh, just wanted to be statistically minded that's you <laughs> statistically <laughs> yes, minded yes. schwanny dave statistically minded schwan there <laughs> nothing on sale at schwanny mart by the way now <laughs> prices have been doubled for the holiday season <laughs> no refunds no returns <laughs> Black Friday at Schwanee Mart. <laughs> that had to be quite a place. It's more like Doomsday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think with that, we'll leave that mental picture in people's minds. <laughs> You're listening to the Sunday Spin on WGN. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline Studio. And might as well uh, talk about the 800-pound gorilla. This is our uh, very last uh, Sunday morning Sunday Spin on WGN Radio. We'll be moving to a new time on Sunday afternoons from 5 to 7 uh, when we're not preempted by... Uh, any sports events but uh it's been uh six years and uh kind of uh it's been a great ride team it has been a great ride and i am definitely going to miss doing this program with you 
Me as well. Talking a little uh, little sports with you as well. It's always fun on a Sunday morning. Well, I think it's a good way to get things yeah. started, you know, and uh, uh, no shortage of sports that will be going on on Sunday afternoons. So uh, there'll be plenty to talk about as we uh, move to a new time. But uh, I... Uh, I hope that we've uh, helped uh, inform people. I hope we've helped uh, let uh, elected office holders and aspiring office holders uh, give them a forum for their, uh, you can hear what their agenda is, whether you like it or not. Uh, But try to provide, you know, from doing, writing politics for 30 years, trying to provide a kind of an outlet and a forum for things that I think uh, people should know about and uh as i always joke it was kind of like uh npr comes to wgn (laughs) (laughs) but it was good conversation and that's the thing is i always wanted it to be conversational not uh, confrontational because you can get any of any of that confrontational stuff you can uh, flip on the tv yeah a good conversation and we should thank people that have uh, said to to all of us really about how they enjoy the uh, discussion among ourselves mm-hmm. uh, to get the program started that's been great to hear yeah and much appreciated well as you can tell I, there's a, a great deal of camaraderie uh, here at uh, wgn and i think that shows with the with the morning team which uh, the morning team will continue, and I will move on into the afternoon. I'm going to call you about quarter to six on Sunday <laughs> just to see if you're going to be up and listening. Um, <laughs> what do you think the odds are? <laughs> Very much against me. Yeah, that, <laughs> against you being up well, is what I should say. Kind of like the odds uh, were uh, with the Blackhawks. Oh, uh, yeah, that was not good back to back yeah this one was worse it was it was this one was much worse and i I have to say i didn't see all of it i had to uh cover uh elizabeth warren uh at the uh uh, broadway armory last evening so i didn't get to see all of it which is probably mercifully good i I didn't really uh listen or watch to uh, watch the entire game uh it was a uh it was sloppy. I mean, you know, the the Hawks scored the first goal of the game, but after a, a bad penalty. So, you know, Sod scored the shorthanded goal, and the next thing you know, it's 7-1. to one, And it was ridiculous. I mean, there's not a lot of defense being played. Robin Leonard got pulled in the second, uh, kind of barked some things at the at the bench as he was heading to the dressing room. Uh, and uh, I just played the his, one of his sound bites there that said he was not calling out his teammates right. by name. He was just frustrated and said, "Come on, let's wake up! Wake and, up! Wake up!" I and think. it didn't. Uh, the, the wake up call was not received. Uh, Patrick Kane did score his fourteenth uh, goal of the year that extends his point streak to fifteen straight. But you know, it's a little consequence because you know, just a, a couple of short weeks ago, this team was uh, was on a, a roll. Went ahead, won six in a row. Uh, I know there was a lot of talk yesterday about Duncan Keith not being there. Uh, it's one player, but right. I, I get it. I mean, there's a lot of young defensemen who, uh, as Jeremy Colleton was saying to the media yesterday as well, you know, it's not a good time for young defensemen to defer to the veterans because, you know, the veterans aren't going to be there all the time. You know, there's there's going to come a time, you know, hopefully uh, in the the distant future that, uh, you know, both Seabrook and Keith won't be there. And, you know, guys are going to have to step up on their own and be able to to, to handle themselves in the defensive zone. And, it certainly didn't look like that was uh, was happening yesterday. It's really difficult to blame 
uh, Robin Leonard and Corey Crawford, who came in later. Uh, you know, Colorado's fast. That's a fast skating team. Uh, it reminds me so much of what the Hawks were early on in the in the '09 and '10 season. Younger legs, young legs, fresh legs. Not uh, you know, and not to take anything away from some of the Hawks guys because they've logged a lot of miles. I mean, it's uh, it's no secret that when you play deep into the playoffs, and then there's an Olympic year that was mixed mixed in there as well. That uh, you know, you may be 30 in age, but you're probably 40 as far as ho- uh, hockey is concerned because you're continue to skate and you're playing a lot of games, but. Yeah, yesterday was just one of those things, and you know, I, I think Jeremy Calden kind of said it best. He said, "You know, we have to kind of look at this and forget it as fast as we can because oh, the the Fennec Stanley Cup champs yeah. are in tomorrow. Oh, hello, yeah. St. Louis mm-hmm. is, is in the in the house on Monday, and that hurt to say that. By the way, the defending Stanley Cup champs. Well, I, I noticed you didn't say that yeah. in the same sentence. Correct. Though. I kind of you know spread it out just a little bit because it's it's a little easier to say it that way." Yeah, but uh, yeah, there is no, there is no time. No, and you know you can't look back at what St. Louis did last year and say, oh, they were dead last in January, and you know, that that's an anomaly. That doesn't happen all the time. That that's a team that kind of caught fire at the same time, and everybody uh, was playing well together, and uh, they made a coaching change, and and things kind of clicked for them. But that that's not something you kind of depend on. You you would rather be uh, in the race right now, so you don't have to expend that much energy. In every single game, you know you can be uh, you can be in it and and you know afford yourself to play a game like yesterday once in a while. You know now you can't you can't do that. You know and and just as you said, it was it was just not that long ago they were on a roll. Yeah, six straight wins and uh, they were you know letting the letting the guys play. Yeah, and you know that was the the big change because you know I think we talked about it even at the time. You know, Jeremy Colton said, "Listen, you know, I, I understand. Okay, we, I I I kind of have a better understanding of what I have here on the ice. Yeah, my system might not work right now. Let's let's tweak it a little bit." And I give him a lot of credit for that, and he's continuing to tweak things. I mean, unlike the guy on the uh, that, that coaches up the road a little bit at Soldier Field, who is uh, sticks to his BU plan, and you know the results be damned. You know, so it's uh, one of those kind of things where you know I, I like the the even keel that he is kind of displaying as a coach right now in Colton, and uh, you know we see that easy easygoing demeanor, uh, you and I in the media, and you know we hear uh, quotes uh, and we read them in the paper and online, but he's not a mild mannered guy once the doors are closed to the dressing room. I mean, there's right. no chance. Well, you did bring up the Bears. And- yeah, I did. No bears today, though. Uh, no bears today, but uh, Thursday night uh, against Dallas. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting matchup because the Cowboys are kind of reeling a little bit, and there's a lot of talk about uh, Jason Garrett, their head coach. Uh, of course, Jerry Jones, the meddling owner slash GM, uh, wants to have his say on everything. And, yeah, he writes the check, so I guess he can say whatever he wants. Uh, but that's a desperate team uh, that's going to try to ask to pretty much win out. So do the Bears uh, to really have a logistic, uh, legitimate chance, that is, to qualify for the postseason. So, yeah, I don't have a real good read. I mean, because I've, I've seen Trubisky play pretty well the last couple of games, but, uh, uh, again, two of them have been against the Lions. So it's really hard to to kind of gauge if that game, uh, the second half, especially last week, or uh, was something that uh, you can really kind of put your uh, – you can wrap your head around, or if it's going to be one of those kind of things where he goes back to being the Trubisky we've seen much of this year. Well, I did have to laugh that after uh, the game on Twitter, someone said the Bears are now bowl eligible. 
That was me. Was that you? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> I was feeling a little snarky at the time. <laughs> but it was a perfect response. Yeah. You know, they're bowl eligible, but uh, they're not playoff eligible yet. Uh, it's one of those kind of uh, things that you have to kind of pay attention to. But, you know, I mean, hey, give them credit. They, they did play well. The defense actually came up pretty big. Kyle Fuller with a huge open field tackle, uh, preventing a guy from getting into the end zone uh, late in the game as well. Uh, Eddie Jackson with a with a pick at the end. So I mean, there there was some improvement, but again, it's hard to measure exactly what you're seeing against the Lions team that was starting a third string quarterback. Right, and that's the thing. They made him look. They made like, him look pretty good early. Yes, they did. But then they kind of figured him out, which it shouldn't have taken that long. No, I mean I understood he's third string. They didn't know till late uh, yeah. that he was going to start, so that kind of changes the playbook. But still. You wouldn't expect, you know, him to come out blazing like no. that. No, third play from scrimmage is a seventy-five yard touchdown. Yeah, you kind of say, okay, well, all right, here's your, there's your touchdown, kid. I hope you enjoy it. But then he threw another one. Sure. Uh, well, Dave's here to keep us up to date on all the news. Andy's here with the latest sports. Producer Casera's here to field your phone calls at three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. You can text us at that number. Engineer Bob brought in some leftover turkey stuffing. Remember, you can find all of our shows on WGNRadio.com. You can also get our podcast at iTunes by searching for my name, Rick Pearson. Time for a break on the Sunday Spin. Now back to the Tribune's Rick Pearson. It's the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio. Joining me for this segment of the Sunday Spin is Michael C. Dorf, attorney and George Van Dusen, who's mayor of Skokie. And they are the authors of Clear It with Sid, a biography of Sid Yates, the, the late congressman who served 50 years uh, from uh, and came in with the, uh, was the re-election of uh, Truman and uh, went out in 99. And Clear It with Sid, it's, it's, it's I have to tell you, uh, I don't get a chance to read a lot of books. And plus, I didn't really know Sid Yates at all. I was, during that time, kind of primarily focused on Springfield coverage and things like that. And so, you know, he was an iconic name, but I didn't really know that much about him. But when you look at the history uh, that his tenure spanned in Congress and the changes that occurred over time, uh, just fascinating stories. I mean, when you think of him getting elected in 1948, it was a 50-50 district, Republican-Democrat district. Uh, he was at risk in the early years of being defeated by a Republican. And now you kind of look at the, the, the North Shore and the, and the changes that have occurred there, uh, the evolution that has occurred here. But it is it is a story about the evolution of a country, it I is. think, in many ways. So, uh, I mean... I'd like to hear from each of you, what was the most interesting aspect you found in, in researching the book? Mayor? Well, I think it was discovering a person Michael and I hadn't known. Uh, we both worked for him for many years. I here in Chicago, Michael in D.C., and we thought we knew him. Mm -hmm. uh, it, we had worked on many campaigns. We saw him in all kinds of situations, political, legislative, so on. And when he retired, we started talking about 
the fact that we thought he deserved to have a good biography done of him. There aren't many about members of Congress, speakers, yes. Leaders. And, and we just... And we need to do more of that kind of thing to help educate the public. Plus, he had a fascinating career, as you mentioned. But the more we got into the book and the research, we discovered a person we did not know. And he really is just a fascinating individual. Uh, He worked at the job. Uh, He was a principled individual. Uh, He gave his loyalty to uh, people like John Kennedy. He helped Kennedy out. And the story of the 62 election, I think, is fascinating. I want to get to that, but... Michael, what what did you find the most interesting well, part? Well, when, when when George and I both started working for the congressman, he was already a big shot. He was he was already an elder statesman. He was what they call one of the cardinals of the Congress. These were the the chairs of the appropriations subcommittees, and so they they controlled billions of dollars of, of federal federal money. Um, we we didn't know him as the the young person who who ran unsuccessfully for alderman in 1939 which was which was a race that no one in the office ever told us about in, in all the years we we knew we knew them uh, we didn't know about his, his his naval career we didn't know about some of his early crusades he uh, he did a crusade to ban uh, switchblade knives from, from interstate commerce thinking that uh, this this would um, and crime and juvenile delinquency. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought I thought that was very interesting because I mean it, it, it kind of reminded me of like the trying to ban comic books for, because <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and what, what was so interesting to us is um, we had always respected him, and, um, but I tend I liked him a lot more after I, I started learning about the early years and what what he went through to to get where he was when we first met him. I, I have to tell you that. The, one of the most fascinating parts of the book involved uh, Hyman Rickover, and uh, and I'll let you guys tell the story. Uh, but but the concept of here is the father of the nuclear navy and the uh, discrimination inside the navy uh, that he was up against. Uh, to the point where you know here is the man who basically designed the the first nuclear submarine, and when they had the keel laying ceremony, he's not even invited. It, it, yeah. it took it took a vendor to invite him. But I, I, either one of you, you want to explain the story? There, there was a- absolutely institutional anti-Semitism in, in the Navy, and Rickover had been was a captain had been on the engineering line, not on command line, but engineering, and. Uh, he had been passed over twice for for promotion to admiral, and under the rules of the navy, if he got passed over a third time for admiral, he would be um, uh, cashiered from from the navy. He'd have one year left, and he'd have to retire. And he'd have to mm-hmm. have, have to retire. And uh, Yates took took it on as a as a crusade, um, partly because Rickover was was from Chicago. That's why there's a Rickover Academy at Sen uh, Sen High School. Um, uh, but but also be, be, be because it was just such a, a great unfairness, um, and he took on uh, two presidents, uh, Eisenhower and Truman. Uh, he took on the Navy. Uh, he took on the the, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, and uh, he succeeded in uh, the, the Navy. Never admitted they were wrong. But what they ended what they ended up doing is they they created a slot for 
a promotion from a captain to admiral who was an expert in nuclear propulsion. And there was only one person in the entire United States Navy who fit that slot, and, and, and Rick overgot the promotion. Yates later said it was one of the, the, the greatest triumphs of, of, of his career. But when he talked to Rick Over and, and took up the cause, Rick Over said, I don't want you to make this an anti Semitism as an issue here, which basically seems like telling you're handicapping the lawyer, you know. And Yates didn't. Right. Yates honored the uh, the commitment he had given Rickover, but there were uh, there were four members of Rickover's staff who did cooperate with Yates, and I think what the story shows is what Yates was becoming. He was very thorough. Uh, when uh, Rickover's brother-in-law came to Yates' office, which is the original, Herman, the original entree to this issue, uh, he was a constituent, another constituent. Yates listened to him, didn't know a lot about Rickover other than he was from Chicago and bright man and Jewish, but he spent a lot of time studying it. He talked to Rickover's staff and. Even though Rickover himself wasn't very cooperative, he kind of turned an eye, in knowing that his staff was helping. Uh, he, Rickover was a smart politician, not a particularly likable human being. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to explain that. A very that. difficult human being, uh, and everybody acknowledged that. But at the same time, he had a cadre a very bright young man, one of whom would go on to become president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, who were utterly devoted to him. But after vetting the situation, Yates took it on. And once he took something, he didn't let go. Uh, to him, it wasn't just good PR in his congressional district back home in the uh, in Chicago. It was more than that. And you see that with him when he takes on the SST. You see it again when he takes on the ABM. And then, of course, when he becomes chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, he becomes a negotiator and knows how to deal. And, of course, his Maybe the triumph he's most well-known for was preserving the National Endowment for the Arts, which also took a lot of perseverance. Especially, especially what, what prompted and, and still kind of makes that an issue these days of, of questions about obscenity and what is art and those kinds of things. We're speaking with George Van Dusen. He's the mayor of Skokie and Michael C. Dorf. He's an attorney. They are the authors of Clear It with Sid, the biography of the late Congressman Sid Yates. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay 
Come fly with me. Let's fly. Let's fly away. Welcome back to your Sunday spin. I'm Rick Pierce from the Chicago Tribune here in the WGN Skyline studio, joined by Michael Dorf and George Van Dusen. They are the authors of Clear It with Sid, a biography of uh, Congressman Sid Yates. Speaking of fly with me, and you touched on this, Mayor, briefly about his role in killing the SST as a as a federally subsidized program and it turns out it was almost prophetic that uh, you know the, the the aviation evolved no one's looking for an sst no uh again it it shows yates willingness to do the work that it takes but also he was uniquely situated uh he was out he he had returned to Congress after losing the race for the Senate and needed to find an issue that he could use. Uh, and he found the SST, not quite by accident. Uh, he and a couple other members of Congress, very junior in status, were opposed to it. But all of the leadership, Democrat, Republican, Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, all supported the project, as well as the machinist union. It was going to create uh, thousands of jobs, and it really was looked at as a Cold War issue because Russia was developing. Well, I was going to say it was almost well. another form of space race kind of mm-hmm. issue at that time, and and that's how they they were they were. Uh, projecting it but but yates yates realized first it was an environmental disaster the science of it and the technology was was not there the uh, sonic boom the factor sonic boom factor and and it was just so overpriced and and he said this is just a bad project we shouldn't be doing it let's talk about 1962 when he decides to run for the u.s senate uh and that's everett mckinley dirksen a republican from pekin uh uh, and in, in fairness, a statesman in his own right, um, difficult race uh, to, to make. Well, it, it, it didn't seem difficult at the time. Dirk, Dirksen was the uh, uh, the Republican leader of the Senate at the time, but um, Lou Harris, who uh, the, the, who's now the famous pollster, was then just starting out, was Yates's pollster then, and said that uh, Yates... Could could beat him on domestic issues. This is the time when Kennedy was talking about uh, starting me- Medicare and and a, and a number of domestic programs, and Dirksen was very weak on that. Plus, um, there had been a a Governor Yates, Governor Richard Yates, of. Uh, who's uh, the, the Illinois governor during the Civil War, and all of these downstate people thought that... that Gravitated uh, to the name. Gravitated to the name. And so he had much stronger strength downstate than than it was expected. And so it it really looked like it it, it was a very, very competitive race. Lou Harris told uh, told Yates and and his chief of staff, Mary Bain, uh, this is very winnable. And and so he he jumped in. But. But. uh, (laughs) It's one thing to jump in. and, And it seems almost unheard of in this kind of heightened political atmosphere that we live in is that Sid Yates helped John Kennedy yes, he in, did. The, in the Jewish community and did outreach 
uh, for him. And, and it was even it was, it was yeah. even more than it was, it was. It became very personal. Yates and Kennedy had known each other for a while. They were they were part of this group of young veterans who were in the House of Representatives who would, who would meet every Tuesday night for dinner and talk about issues. Uh, in 1952, Kennedy is uh, is running for Senate for the first time, and he has no Jewish support in Massachusetts because his father, Joe Kennedy, right. uh, is an acknowledged anti-Semite and had been a, a Hitler sympathizer during the, during the 30s. And so, as partly as a result of the Rickover race, Yates had become a national Jewish spokesman. Kennedy asks his friend, Sid Yates, to come to Massachusetts and campaign for the Jewish community. Uh, Kennedy wins the race uh, over Henry Cabot Lodge by only about 75,000 votes. So then, and then Yates is an absolute supporter of Kennedy in running for president. 1962 happens. Uh, Yates now wants to run for Senate and expects that his old friend, John Kennedy, who he saved in 52 and whose administration he's totally supported, would support him for the race. And, and he didn't. He stabbed him in the back. And it tells you a little bit about what the nature of the house was 1960 was a good year for yates uh in one sense kennedy won the election he has a friend in the white house however he was supposed to become chairman of an appropriation subcommittee the chairman of the appropriations committee hates yates hit going all the way back to 48 and decides, I don't want a Jewish liberal as a chairman of one of my subcommittees. Yeah, I mean, let's remember, you know, we're talking about Dixiecrats back then, too, and, yeah. and that whole polarization factor he was, in Democrats. Uh, the chairman uh, was a Southern segregationist, and he was an anti-Semite. And Yates had used yeah. his position on the Appropriations Committee to, to try to defeat desegregation, and this was before Brown versus Board. So, so there, there was a lot of, a lot of dislike there. Uh, and uh, in 60, he just abolishes the subcommittee. And Yates, uh, in an interview, uh, said at the time, where am I going? I'm stopped by the Dixiecrats. I can't go anywhere so he decides he's going to take on Dirksen for the Senate, and he had every expectation that he could win the race. As Michael pointed out, uh, his pollster told him, uh, the weekend of Labor Day, which in those days was the kickoff for the uh, partisan election, you can win. Uh, and, and then, of course, Kennedy had formed a friendship, but also a political alliance with Dirksen. And then Lyndon Johnson jumped in as well. We, we have a White House tape that Lyndon Johnson made uh, in 1964, after he, he became president, um, where he is on a phone call with Everett Dirksen, and he says, uh, and, you know, you owe me. The, uh, uh, the White House came to me in 1962 and said, should we support Sid Yates? And, and I said to them, uh, it'll be a national tragedy the day that Everett Dirksen isn't in the Senate. So Kennedy's working against him. Lyndon Johnson's working against him. Uh, we, we, we have a, uh, a, an interview with, with somebody who said that uh, Mayor Richard Daley um, got a phone call from Kennedy telling him to, to lay off on, on this race. Uh, George, my one dispute in this is, is to what extent did, did Daley follow, follow through on that. But, but certainly, we absolutely clear, 
all of the national Democratic leadership was trying to help Dirksen, the Republican, uh, stay in the Senate. Even Mike Mansfield, the majority leader of the Senate, organized a tribute to Everett Dirksen on the floor of the United States Senate. (laughs) Hubert Humphrey, the liberal icon, stood up along with Mansfield and paid tribute to Everett Dirksen. And, of course, that was the headlines all back home. And toward the end of the campaign, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. Kennedy sent sent an airplane to O'Hare Airport to bring Dirksen back to Washington. And there's the famous little vignette of Dirksen at the airport having alerted the media. And he supposedly is talking to his wife, but of course he was talking rather loud. Honey, I have to go back to Washington to help the young president in this national crisis. I'm not going to be able to campaign very much because of this. Well, the polls the poll switched overnight. Sure, that's uh, the, the ball game. That really ball game sense. over. Gentlemen, I mean, just we could talk for hours about this, and I, I, I regret that our time has come to a close here. But I mean, we're in the holiday time. This is a great gift. This book, clear it with Sid, uh, Sid Sidney R. Yates, in fifty years of presidents, pragmatism, and public service. Gentlemen, a great book. Thank you so much, thank Michael you, Dorf, George Van Dusen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. Thank Thank you. you. Enjoy being with you. This is the Sunday Spin on 720 WGN. Once again, here's Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Welcome back to the second hour of your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Busy week in Washington as we spin through a bit of national politics, uh, including today a deadline for uh, President Trump uh, to decide whether Either he or his lawyers will appear on Wednesday before the House Judiciary Committee, which is to start its formal hearings on articles of impeachment. We also have word that the uh, House Intelligence Committee, which has taken the lead in the impeachment inquiry, uh, has uh, will detail its findings to members uh, on Monday, and they will have a vote scheduled on Tuesday to approve Uh, their impeachment report, the House Democratic-led committee, and that will send the matter over to the House Judiciary Committee. Also, uh, surprising news uh, on Thanksgiving, a surprise visit uh, by the president to visit with U.S. troops in Afghanistan, where he says that uh, he's willing to uh, reopen negotiations with the Taliban. There's nowhere I'd rather celebrate this Thanksgiving then right here with the toughest, strongest, best and bravest warriors on the face of the earth, you are indeed that. You know, uh, when I took office, you can believe it, almost three years ago, we were uh, very depleted. Our military was depleted in terms of equipment, you see, right? They're all shaking their heads, that's right. We have all those brand new planes and brand new helicopters and brand new ships being built now, brand new incredible submarines. Probably the most powerful submarines, probably the most powerful weapon in the world is what we're building. The form of submarines. Nobody's, nothing's even close. But we have things that nobody's seen, nobody's heard about, and we'll keep it that way. But we've spent two and a half trillion dollars, very close to that number, and uh, very shortly it'll be at two and a half trillion dollars 
And while I don't love that, you know, what that does to my budget, because I'm a budget person, uh, we don't have a strong military budget, so matter much, do they? So that's President Trump uh, from his uh, surprise visit uh, to Afghanistan over Thanksgiving. Well, joining me now here in the Skyline studio is May Whiteside. May is chair of Flourish Pack, and on the phone is uh, former state representative Letitia Wallace from Rockford, Democrat from Rockford, who I'm sorry I thought was going to be in studio because I was going to tell her to bring some Mrs. Fisher's potato (laughs) chips for me. Oh, <laughs> I definitely would have brought you some. I see. You can't, you can't pass Mrs. Fisher's. But May, May is chair of Flourish Pack. And I'd like you just to explain what Flourish Pack is. And welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Flourish Pack is a nonpartisan political action committee that's focused on putting women of color in office, Uh, more importantly, black women, because our voices have to not only be expressed in campaigns, but we really want to bring our issues in our community forward so that we can see some inclusion um, when it comes to policy about our communities, uh, when it comes to the economic uplifting of our communities. More often, we are starting businesses, we are driving the economy in our local communities. So we want we want to be, you know, our seat at the table. And how does Letitia fit in? So the, the awesome part about Letitia is having had that experience on a state level, passing bills, crafting legislation to include uh, voices from underrepresented communities. And when the uh, impetus for the, um, the Illinois Black Campaign Academy, uh, I reached out to her and I said, hey, I would love if you can add your voice to to amplify uh, the objectives of the pack. And so, uh, and so she agreed to do so. Uh, uh, Leticia, I mean, you you actually even had a statewide platform uh, as a, yeah. a candidate for lieutenant governor. Yes, I did. Uh, so last year I did run in the primary with uh, State Senator Daniel Biss as his lieutenant governor um, partner. Um, and that gave me so much more insight. I'm originally from Southside in the south suburbs of Chicago. I've been in Rockford for over a decade now. So I knew about those areas. But, of course, traveling throughout the entire state um, on a statewide campaign gives you that much more of an insight in terms of what's happening economically across our state. Um, who feels like they're actually included in our politics, not just as candidates and individuals in the room, but who's working the campaigns, um, who is helping to forward the message of communities that have often been marginalized and silenced. Well, and, and May, one of the things, as you say, about Flourish Pack is about the goal is, is to encourage African-American women uh, into office. Yes. But yes. then you have... Uh, the offshoot of that, which is the Illinois Black Campaign Academy, which uh, I think raises a real important role because not everybody can run for office. This is about inclusion in staffing, staffing of, of, of minority inclusion, not just women, but just to have that factor as part of the campaigns. Is there a belief that campaigns have not been inclusive enough uh there is because um the fact of um 
and I, and I'll be honest, I also donate to campaigns. I'm often contacted by fundraisers to donate to their candidates. And more often on the other end of the phone, they're not African American. They're not people of color. And, and, and in a candidate's, um, organization, they need to look at how to gain access to, um, African American to fill those key roles in, in organizations because it, it reflects one, you're, you're truly committed to campaign diversity and two, you have them in meaningful roles, not just all the field work, but you're actually having them as a part of your think tank. And that, and that one of the comments that came up through the, throughout the three black campaign academies we've had thus far across the state is when you have inclusion of African-Americans on campaigns and we're door knocking, more often the person at the door is going to connect to that person because they eat chances are they know that person. So they're going to believe in that candidate. You know what I mean? It, it translates down. And what I find is that there's not enough that I see. The only African-American person that I've ever seen in a key role uh, was Stacey Abrams campaign. And he was the campaign finance director. And I've never seen that before. Well, and Letizia, you know, having run statewide, but even just as having run and won in Rockford, uh, mm-hmm. the, the we talk a lot about uh, inclusion and in and, and, and business as a, being an important factor for successful businesses, uh, diversity being an important part of growing businesses, and yet you know it's the the, the it's the political machine that has kind of put mandates that uh, on corporate boards and those kinds of things, but aren't necessarily following the rules themselves. Right. Um, so here in Illinois, you do see um, a lack of diversity and inclusion among campaign staffers. I'm really proud of the organization that, um, this and I had, we now have a current state senator who was our political director um, for our campaign. But the only other African-American woman besides myself was our field director. And I, that was key. So it, it was a very small organization, and we were doing what we could on a shoestring bu- budget. But I think making sure that we have as many diverse uh, voices at the table as possible just has to be the center of all campaigns. No matter where we look throughout our state and throughout our country, we can assume that there are certain areas that have more quote-unquote minorities than others. But the truth of the matter is people of color are everywhere. And unfortunately, we also have um, some negative outcomes in a number of areas throughout our state and our country and we need to be at the table when people are creating their policy platforms and certainly we need to be at the table when individuals are crafting um, any type of public policy because our voices can help uplift um, everyone economically. If you reach to the lowest African-American earner, particularly women, in almost any community, if you can lift her up with a living wage, with health care, perhaps help to start the dream business that she has, you have impacted an entire community. And by creating policies along that line, it only helps to strengthen our economy throughout the state. So I don't know why 
most of us or more of us are not at the table, but hopefully May and I will help to, to make that uh, less of a, a truth and will be more um, included as we move forward. We're speaking with May Whiteside. She's chair of Flourish Pack and former state representative Letisa Wallace, Democrat from Rockford. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, in other words, welcome back to the Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Joining me here in the WGN Skyline Studio is May Whiteside. She's chair of Flourish Pack, and on the phone is former state representative Leticia Wallace, Democrat from Rockford. We're talking about Flourish Pack as well as the Illinois Black Campaign Academy uh, efforts to uh, try to increase diversity not only among elected office holders but also with campaign staffs which i think really is is more of a fundamental point yes uh, because as we say you know everything grows upwards and and Mm -hmm. that is i think you know when you have candidates drawing up platforms uh, trying to lift people up having that diversity is an important factor isn't it may it is very important um, because we're able to bring forth uh, the issues that affect our community. And far too often, I feel as though after the candidate is in office, sometimes they they, they don't carry through on those initiatives. And most oftentimes, I don't see some of the African-American staffers move on to key roles in the leadership. Um, and so, uh, for example, um, I would say, like, in our communities, uh, we've long talked about food deserts. You've heard Michelle Obama talk about it. You've heard local um, 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 community members talk about it. The fact that I live in the Ninth Ward and we have no grocery stores, we're in the midst of a food desert for decades, that's a problem. And so when candidates craft their messages, we want to, we want to say, what policies are you going to create so we don't live in communities such as this? Uh, we pay taxes. We're, we're counted upon to deliver our vote. Um, and I feel that black campaign staffers could play key roles in those uh, positions to, to craft the policy that affects our community. But Latisa, as you also point out, it's not just in areas of predominant african-american population but you know the state has a great deal of diversity uh, you know the 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 suburbs aren't white bread anymore and i think you kind of found that out during your campaign oh definitely um and even as a state legislator i would often talk about the fact that there are very we don't think about it, but there are so many similarities between our rural and urban communities. Those communities are suffering from the same, um, the food deserts, the healthcare deserts. Um, will their education system be an adequate system for their children? Where are the jobs that pay a living wage? Can they start the small business that could help to create jobs for others? Those are issues that we see throughout the state. Um, but I think it's important to listen to communities of color because I'll pick on my own party. We often go to those communities asking for their vote and asking for their support. But if your campaign and your eventual staff 
um, if you're successful as a candidate, doesn't reflect um, the diversity and the the need for uh, marginalized groups to be at the table, then have you really delivered anything that you said you would deliver? Um, So I think it's very important to bridge the gaps that we see between rural and urban, and I think it's extremely important to make sure that everyone in our most diverse state, our state is so diverse, it's very reflective of what the United States population is like. If we're not putting people at the table at the same at least proportion um, of their population here in the state, then are we really doing what we should be doing as candidates, as policymakers, um, and as uh, drivers and economic influencers? I don't think we are if we're not bringing everyone to the table. And, you know, to ba- to bounce off Latisa too, uh, I find it hilarious, well, kind of ironic that those of us on the south side of Chicago have the same issues as, as rural and rural communities. It's it, We all want mm-hmm. the same thing. And, and it's, I thought it was just they had different problems than our communities. It's almost the same. And, and and so how do we drive those voices up from the communities into campaigns, let it reflect? And I think the Black Campaign Academy can do that. And you're a businesswoman as yes. well. Yes. So, I mean, there there is that issue, too, of policies that help entrepreneurs. Yes. Uh, where it, it seems like people use that term a lot, mm-hmm. especially for uh, impoverished communities. But are we doing enough for that? Uh, personally, uh, I don't think so. <clears throat> I think that um, a lot of us black entrepreneurs, we find ourselves last in terms of receiving prime opportunities with various units of government. Uh, it's starting to change, but it, it has not really done so. Um, I've been a business owner in Chicago for 10 years, and I will tell you, it is a daily struggle uh, to make my voice heard with various departments in my line of work. So that's why that campaign inclusion is so important, because um, unless someone from my community is on that campaign expressing that, hey, you know, we've got all these entrepreneurs here with no access to capital, no access to the government contracting. Um, that's a problem. Let's create some policy that's going to make an impact. And then let's actually drive that policy through. That's May Whiteside. She is chair of Flourish Pack. And also I want to thank former state representative Letisa Wallace, Democrat from Rockford, for joining me this morning. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thanks well, for having us. Now the Sunday Spin continues on 720 WGN. Here's Rick Pearson. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. I'm Rick Pearson of the Chicago Tribune. Obviously, things uh, heating up in the political campaigns. We had Elizabeth Warren here in Chicago yesterday. Over in Iowa, candidates uh, buying uh, TV ads. Uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has a new one with an Iowa farmer saying Sanders would fight for him. Bernie is, is a very rare egg in Washington. He's honest. Through his whole career, he has fought for our cases. Bernie fights for the average Joe. That's the thing I like about him the most. He's not there for Wall Street. He's not there for Hollywood. He's not there for big oil or big pharma or big anybody. That's big us. I'm good with big us. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. 
So we go from average Joe to former Vice President Joe Biden, also out with a new ad in Iowa, focusing on the importance of being commander-in-chief. To be commander-in-chief of the United States, it's a sacred duty. The next president is going to face enormous challenges of picking up the pieces of American foreign policy. We need a leader who can't, on day one, stand with our allies, know them by their first names, and have them know there'll be no question about the word of the next president of the United States. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. So there you go, just a sampling of a couple of the presidential uh, spots airing out in Iowa. Uh, don't need to recount the Michael Bloomberg spot, which is running all across America uh, to the tune of millions of dollars. More money being spent by him in his initial ad buy than all of the large field of Democratic contender, con- contenders combined. So... Uh, if you got money, spend it, right? Uh, joining me here in the WGN Skyline studios, my good friend, longtime colleague, Ray Long. Uh, Ray, part of the investigative team at the Chicago Tribune. And uh, I was joking uh, off air that uh, uh, no holidays. No holidays. Right, uh, right. You're at war, and I'm uh, writing to. And, uh, well, and we also had, uh, on Wednesday, we had... Uh, Senator Sandoval uh, resigning, right, seat right. effective January one, right? One two punches here. A lot, a lot going on. But Ray has been writing a lot about uh, the federal investigations uh, going on uh, with uh, that are, uh, I, I would say, Mike Madigan related. I guess, and this uh, this has been quite a year for Democratic House Speaker Michael Madigan, uh, Speaker of the House since 1983, uh, except for a two-year period, the longest-serving speaker in the nation. Um, And on Friday, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, another fallout from some of the problems that have crept up uh, involving the Me Too movement. Tell us what happened on Friday. Right. Uh, really late in the day on Friday, uh, I got word that... Uh, Nothing happens early on right, Friday. Right. The day after Thanksgiving, yeah. or less. Uh, I got word that uh, Elena Hampton, who uh, was a person who... Uh, blew the whistle on uh, one of Madigan's uh, lieutenants back last year uh, and said that he had uh, been texting her inappropriately. It became a uh, high-profile sexual harassment case. The speaker had uh, uh, sought to uh, to uh, address a lot of sexual harassment issues but this case was still hanging over her she sued and um just last friday she settled for two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars now and she had claimed she was blackballed from working on campaigns right. and that again this was all an issue that was foisted upon her right by right. unwanted by an unwanted advances from a uh madigan lieutenant's uh, relative. Right. The backstory is that uh, Elena Hampton uh, was uh, viewed herself as a as a protege of Alderman Marty Quinn, and he's the thirteenth ward handpicked alderman of Mike Madigan, the Southwest Side uh, kingpin, who has been the committeeman of that ward for decades, and. Um, 
she went to Marty Quinn and complained about his brother, Kevin Quinn. And at that time, uh, the uh, harassment stopped, both Marty Quinn and Elena said. But uh, she thought that uh, Kevin Quinn uh, should have been fired. And um, this uh, went on for a while. He eventually was ousted after uh, Madigan reviewed the case. And then she still filed a... uh, a retaliation case because she said that she tried to get some jobs through the Madigan uh, operations and was blackballed. So we have this settlement of a federal uh, court right, suit. Right. But it, as is traditional in settlements, uh, there is no acknowledgement of any wrongdoing. Exactly, exactly. So um, she gets 75000 out of the 275000 The rest go to her lawyers and the uh, uh, Time's Up uh, Legal uh, f- Defense Fund. That's the group that uh, has uh, been an outgrowth of the Me Too, National Me Too movement. And this was... The the suit that she filed was against... This was against uh, four uh, political parties uh, that are controlled by Madigan. The Democratic Party of Illinois, the Democratic Majority, which is for his house, Friends of Michael Madigan, and the 13th Ward, which is what he uh, reigns over. And so... um, they are the ones who uh, uh, settled, and, of course, they're all tied to Madigan. Yeah, they are all four campaign committees that Mike Madigan controls the money. Exactly. And, and that's part of the benefits of being in leadership. Absolutely. In the state. Uh, do you think this issue of Me Too... And the, a large, growing number of women in the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, do you think this issue effectively goes away? Well, I think it's going to be there for a while, Rick. I think it lingers, and I think it's had some impact already. They've had to address a, a number of, of issues. Madigan's met with uh, women throughout his caucus and throughout his staff. Um, I think that um, there's still pressure on him because there are other developments in this. And one of the things is that um, uh, we saw that Mike McLean, an ex-lobbyist of uh, ComEd, had um, orchestrated payments uh, from other uh, current and and former ComEd lobbyists to Kevin Quinn after he was ousted by Madigan. So Madigan's people uh, put out a statement saying that uh, if there were people who uh, did uh, participate... Who made payments to Kevin Quinn, we had nothing to do with it. Exactly. Now, this this was orchestrated by a guy who was uh, as close to Madigan as anybody, Mike McClain. Mike McLean, being a former uh, Democratic state representative right. turned lobbyist, who was, uh, and, and even as lobbyist, was perhaps the closest confidant to House Speaker Michael Madigan. Yeah, even had a piece in, in organizing some of the fundraising, etc. He was a strategist with, with uh, Mike Madigan. They uh, were... Uh, meeting and, and uh, dinner in Springfield and something that not too many people do with Madigan except for McLean and a small handful of others. So um, he also 
we found emails that backed up this uh, orchestration of, of the payments to Kevin Quinn, and um, they were uh, saying uh, very frankly that, uh, uh, Kevin, you've got to uh, keep this confidential because if uh, these guys have, uh, who have done quite a sacrifice here for you uh, get caught uh, then uh, the full blast of the Me Too movement will be upon you. Well, and so who are the guys that make made the payment? Well, we've got uh, some uh, well-connected lobbyists. We have uh, uh, people like uh, Tom Cullen, who is a political strategist for Madigan since the 1980s at least. Um, he is now a, a, a lobbyist for Ameren, another power company, but he was f- formerly a a comed um, uh, lobbyist and uh, Will Cousineau's firm. Will Cousineau was another political uh, point man for for Madigan, um, and we have also uh, McLean himself, and we have John Bradley, who was a, a state rep in leadership and a close friend of McLean, and we have uh, Mike Alvarez, who was a Metro uh, Water Reclamation. Uh, uh, commissioner at one time and now lobbies uh, the city hall for comed so you have a comed thread and a madigan thread exactly exactly and uh, of course we still have as a backdrop of that comed is being investigated by the federal government their lobbyist activities are being investigated these payments that we've talked about have been part of the investigation we're told by sources so it is a uh, it is a rolling roiling investigation we're speaking with ray long my colleague at the chicago tribune part of the investigative team who's done uh, uh, a great deal of work in trying to unravel those threads that we were just talking about i'm rick pearson this is the sunday spin chicago chicago that title in town chicago chicago i will show you around i love it bet your bottom dollar bet your bottom dollar is what we're talking about in chicago absolutely with ray long my uh, chicago tribune colleague part of the investigative team talking about uh, federal investigations a federal lawsuit settlement um you know there's it, it just keeps going yeah this is one uh, very uh extensive sprawling burgeoning all these words that we've used before on on lesser investigations these are on steroids here this is really a major uh sweep it wouldn't be right on our final sunday morning not to take one of our favorite callers absolutely ron welcome to the sunday spin Hey, good morning to two of my favorites. And, uh, you know, I know this is a long shot, Ray, but is there any possibility that there can be some kind of demand from the Democrats for Mike Madigan to step down from the state leadership post? And, Rick, great six years. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the next run. Just a great run, man, and just appreciate you. So I'll be listening. I'm ready for the next start. Thanks, All right, Ron, we'll be looking forward to it. So I think, I think he raises a very, interesting question here sure i think it i think it's legit we saw last week uh senator iris martinez a committeeman herself who's running now for circuit clerk she uh, called for uh madigan to 
explain these payments that were made to Kevin Quinn that we were just talking about by the uh, lobbyists and friendly lobbyists uh, or resign. So um, there are people out there who talk about it in whispers. Um, few uh, stand up like Iris Martinez did and say something about it. But um, it, it is very difficult to to uh, overcome all of the, the uh, levers and switches that Madigan could pull here to keep his power in place. Well, and as we said, you know, you're looking at over since 1983. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and despite these issues... And and you sometimes wonder, you, we've seen politicians get behind the times. Right. I mean, George Ryan, I think, yeah. a prime example. Yeah, Rusty. Yeah. But but Madigan is, you know, the consummate uh, 3D chessboard player. Absolutely. But behind the times on Me Too, uh, and, and, you know, that becomes the issue, I think, of the old school of political loyalty versus the new school of political reality yeah yeah i think that's very good analysis and i'm curious where is he now well i think he is trying to adapt and he's trying to um move um into this millennium right and he is also uh doing things like uh, you know, he he hasn't really even had much of a social media presence, and that of course. Well, is something... it was. I mean, don't write anything down. Don't right. use emails. Don't use a cell phone. You know, they, right? Truly old school as old school can be in this new era of politics. Exactly, exactly. And of course, right now he's probably saying, "Look, uh, McLean, these emails that you wrote have now." come out in the paper and uh those are ones that uh mclean referred to the speaker as himself and he I, I i laughed when i saw that only because <laughs> you know as well as i do that when himself is termed we know exactly who he was talking absolutely about. yeah it's sure it's an irish expression irish gaelic expression but it also is uh one that is rooted in the idea of this is the big man of the house and so um we also saw uh, the uh, emails, just to divert onto that a bit, a bit that McLean wrote that uh, went to campaign uh, fund people, people who uh, are the political cash guys, and those are, he called the most trusted of the trusted. And so there were these cutesy phrases, too, that came out in these emails, and that gets to the whole point that Madigan didn't like to see stuff written down. Uh, let's talk about the recordings yeah another thing that uh, we broke uh, nobody's been able to match yet uh, rick is a story a few weeks ago that uh, uh, mike mclean this very close confidant uh, of mike madigan uh, was recorded by the fbi and so we don't know exactly how long that was going on but we do know that um he talks to everybody and he and uh, one of the uh, one of the, our sources said it was his cell phone that was wiretapped and um he used to hang out in front of the speaker's office all the time we don't know for, that uh, madigan is on those tapes because he's famously cautious about uh, talking on the phone or what he says on the phone um but uh mclean could be 
a very key cog in this and the conversations he would have had with his ComEd clients and uh, many of the other lobbyists could really be telling. One of the things, and, and uh, I, I think it's an important fact, is so you have this kind of, you have this investigation going right. on. You had the uh, Fed's raid Martin Sandoval, the right. recently resigned state senator, right. who was Senate Transportation Chairman. Uh, you have Representative Arroyo, former representative, who, uh, because of a cooperating witness that our, our source says is uh, State Senator Terry Link right. of Vernon Hills, uh, on, on a, a bribe attempt, alleged bribe. What does this do for Democrats? going into not only an election year and granted illinois is still going to be blue you have in november that issue of that graduated rate income tax that sure. is the underpins everything that governor pritzker wants yet is perfect fodder for republicans to say even before that happened look at what's going on right i think that's going to I think that's going to be a drag on on uh, Governor Pritzker's uh, uh, tax proposal, and I I think that uh, um, we will see a tax that will say, you know, do you trust these Democrats? Um, uh, and if the if some federal indictments start rolling down uh, with some big names involved in it, then that will just increase the the attacks and give more fodder to the opponents of a tax increase, too. So much to look forward to in the coming year. <laughs> Ray Long, my colleague at the Chicago Tribune, part of our great investigative team. Buddy, as always, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Rick. The final curtain my friend i'll say it clear i'll state my case of which i'm certain i've lived a life that's full i traveled each and every highway and more much more than this I did it my way. Well, that's all we have time for on our final Sunday morning edition of the Sunday Spin. I want to thank my guests, Michael Dorff and George Van Dusen, the offers of Clear It with Sid about Sid Yates, May Whiteside, chair of Flourish Pack, and former state representative Leticia Wallace from Rockford, and Ray Long from the Tribune's investigations team. I also want to thank all of you who've listened for the last six years to this morning time slot. And a reminder, though we'll be moving to 5 to 7 in the afternoons, you can still find our shows by going to wgnradio.com look under the show's listings or by searching for the podcast on itunes 